broadband. We need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. And thank you for listening in to another episode of Rural Broadband Today. And I'm excited to have as our guest on the show, Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley. Uh, Commissioner, we're delighted to have you on the show. Man, it's glad to be. I'm glad to be with you. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the chance. It's a long time we've been needing to, to link up. Yeah, that's for sure. I've uh, I've been following your your career over there for some time, and uh, I think you really put the service in uh, public service, Commissioner. And I appreciate that. So. I appreciate that very much. So uh, let, let's kind of start there and um, give our listeners a little background and uh, how you got to the Public Service Commission. And uh, I know there's been a few stops along the way. And so just, just give us a little background. Well, my first political office, I was elected mayor of my hometown of Nettleton back in 2001. And then I served there, um, was reelected in 2005. And then the uh, Public Service Commissioner that had been in office for 16 years had decided not to seek reelection in 2007. So in Mississippi, municipal elections, like in Alabama and in, in most states, are on an off year compared to when state elections are. And so when I was re-elect, reelected in 2005, uh, I was about two years into that term when uh, the seat on the Public Service Commission came open and I ran and, and was elected. And so I had to resign as mayor on December the 31st of 2007 and, of course, became uh, commissioner uh, the next day. And so that's sort of been uh, my career coming from local government and state government. And then, of course, I ran for election in, in 2011, 2015, and then uh, last year. And luckily, last year slipped by without ha- without having an opponent. Well, that that's, that speaks to your popularity and, and the fact that the public uh, has trust in you and thinks you're doing a great job. Either, either that or nobody else wants this crazy job, one of the two. <laughs> Well, it's uh, you know, it's easy uh, for citizens to look at the governor and see what they do, and you know, even your local senators and uh, representatives. But when you think about the public service commission, it's not always clear exactly what the the role of a of a commissioner is. Kind of explain for our listeners a little bit about uh, what a public service commissioner does. Well, you know, in Mississippi. Um Public Service Commission is one of the oldest state agencies um, that was actually mentioned in our state constitution. It began as the Railroad Commission um, because of railroads coming through areas and, and obviously the need to protect landowners and ensure fair transportation rates and those sort of things. And then over the years, as, as monopoly systems uh, kind of increased in their um, uh and their penetration, really, in how our society works, uh, the Public Service Commission became more of a regulatory body, not just over railroads, but electricity, water, sewer, natural gas, as it came in as an energy source, telephones. Uh, and then, of course, that's in 2020, that's morphed into really a, a different take on telecommunications when you look at things like broadband and others. And although we don't regulate uh, the, the cost for service to broadband, our agency is tasked with enforcing and administering uh, much of uh, the FCC's rules related to the Connect America Fund, the Universal Service Fund, and we have a role to play in that uh, related to telecommunications. And in a broader sense, the legislature a few years ago tasked the commission with 
making sure that in, in carrying out all of our duties that we advance economic development of the state. And of course, one of our duties is related to the expenditure of broadband money and, and how policy works on the on both the federal level, but making sure we get the most for the state. So uh, let's boil that down to how the Public Service Commission impacts the daily lives of the citizens. Well, you know, we regulate the vital services um, of the people of the state. You know, we nobody could imagine in 2020 not having electricity, not being mm-hmm. able to get a phone. Uh, these are the these are the uh, machines, if you will, that make our economy work and make modern life work. And so, you know, our job um, when it comes to electricity is to make sure it's reliable, affordable, um, and and the lights are always on. Uh, that's kind of a you know, a worn out phrase, but it's true. Uh, and the same thing with other services. But I'm, I've tried to take a different take on that. Yes, that's part of our job is to make sure that the current system works. But also, how are we expanding services to people who lack them? How are we making sure that, for instance, rural communities get access to natural gas service so that they have the same options to heat their home as someone living in a city? Uh, and, and of course, that applies to, to broadband. Um, but also, you know, and incidentally, uh, just yesterday, uh, we got notice of a of a grant that has been awarded to one of our small towns to go out into a rural area to provide water. Uh, and we're working some legislation to make sure that the the laws are clear that this this city, this town, really can go out and and serve these rural customers. So we we think that you know everybody has access to community water. They don't. Mm-hmm. So we still have some basic bl- building blocks of services that are that we're still working on, but. Um, you know, the one that has leapfrogged just about everything, to be candid with you, has been uh, the topic of your podcast and your work, and that's broadband. Mm, absolutely. And I think we we knew leading up to uh, the current situation that we're in that broadband and solving this rural broadband problem was uh, definitely needed to be a, a focus of the country. I mean, we can look back even to 2009, 2010 with the, uh, the, the stimulus grants and things of that nature on up through the, the reconnect and all, you know, there's been momentum, but I think there's uh, I think that pales in comparison to the attention that rural broadband is getting now because of, because of all the folks sitting at home uh, working, going to school and having to access those services from their house. Well, it, that's exactly right. I mean, we knew that, uh, uh, we knew that this was an issue going into COVID-19. It was getting a, a lot of the appropriate attention and not just on the federal level, but the state level. Uh, but it was, you know, I think that we never had to really rely on the system. You know, we, we were, we were in a situation where we were, uh, reacting to the fact that people lack service, but, um, that was not coupled with the sense of a national emergency or a pandemic and where we had to, you know, within a period of really, probably two weeks to be fair about the calendar in about two weeks this whole country had to transition in a major shift to online work online education telehealth telemedicine and we had to do it and we were somewhat um i think for rural areas not caught by surprise because we knew this was an issue and some of us had been working on it for a long time but the issue was forced and we had to really see the realities of where this lack of public leadership in many places uh, has gotten us, and 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 it was it was you know essentially a, a we were forced into that situation by events outside of our control, uh, and, it, and it just made it more stark and made it more clear and made it more up close and personal. And the very things that many of us have been talking about for years came to pass uh, in reality, and in which other people, uh, legislators, policymakers, and the like 
could see. I mean, when you drive by McDonald's and McDonald's parking lot is filled up with parents doing homework. When I drove by my library in my hometown of Nettleton, it's just a block from my house. And at one night there were uh, seven or eight cars sitting in the, in a parking lot and they were all accessing the hotspot there. Uh, that mm-hmm. tells you that we've got a problem. It's undeniable. Uh, the jury's returned a verdict and this is something we've got to get fixed uh, and got it. And we have to get it fixed. It's with the tools that we have in the toolbox, but at the same time, understanding that, you know, uh, there's going to be a time that we're going to have a second wave of this pandemic. Uh, you know, I believe science, and, and it, we know that that's, that that's coming. But God forbid we have another pandemic within the next decade or the next two decades. Are we going to have take the lessons, taken the lessons learned during COVID-19 and said, um, you know, under no circumstance are we going to be back here again, or are we just going to Band-Aid this and hope that, you know, maybe we can skirt around the edges and, and really not have a policy? And there are a lot of things that stand in the way of that as you and are probably already aware, and, and we know it in our gut, a lot of money and interest. There's a lot of reasons in which there are folks that stand against rural broadband uh, because of, of selfish interest, quite frankly. Hmm. Well, I really believe the collective will uh, is there now uh, for the country to say, look, we need to solve this. Of course, there's always folks who say, well, people choose to live in a rural area, and they understand that they're going to have a limited access to resources. So just let them deal with that. But that's really not the reality. Uh, we can't have everyone moving to the city. That's right. And we've got, to, you know, I hear politicians and I'm one of them. So I can talk about politicians. You know, I hear people talk about, you know, rural America and they want to conjure up the, the, uh, the images of a, of a barn and a John Deere tractor. And, and, and that's right. But then, uh, don't talk about rural America if you're not talking about connectivity and rural broadband, because the truth is, if you're not trying to fix that problem, you really don't care about rural America, because that is the issue that is holding our rural people back. It's why we see population trends going the wrong way in rural America and rural Mississippi and rural Alabama. Um, and, and that's just a fact. It's undeniable. Uh, and it's the same situation that we found ourselves in in the 1930s with electricity. And we fixed it. And we've got to do the same here. You know, this is, uh, you know, I hate to use the term no brainer, but this is one of the simplest uh, issues to recognize. Fixing it has got a lot of twists and turns, but recognizing the problem there is there is, is very simple. Uh, and it's something that, that, you know, we can do something about. It. And we know that there are models that can do something about it. Um, it just steps on some toes of people who like the system the way it is and like to have their little playground the way in which they have it, in which they've been able to reap huge monetary benefits to the detriment of people uh, in our most rural areas who have been told by these very companies, we have no desire to serve your area. We have no plans to serve your area. And so while uh, certain um, Internet service providers and big telecom companies will tell a rural county we don't intend to bring service there. They don't want anybody else to. And that's where, you know, I think the exposure to that hypocrisy has really helped us get some legs and not only in Mississippi, but around the country. Well, leading into this uh, pandemic, uh, but before that, Mississippi was uh, becoming a hotbed of uh, rural broadband uh, progress. And I believe it was, correct me if I'm wrong, in January 2019, when the governor uh, signed that legislation that I'd like to get you to talk a little bit about that uh, with our listeners here. 
Yeah, well, it, you really have to back up a little further than that, actually. So, you know, I was elected to the commission in 07 and 2008, and while broadband was a topic at the time, uh, you know, the world has changed so much in the past decade that in 20, uh, 2008, while broadband connectivity was an issue, we really were talking about cell phone reception, and that's still a problem to, to certain degrees. But broadband connectivity was something that you heard economic developers talk about. It's something that you heard uh, tech people talking about. But most people at that time, you know, literally, if you could open your email, send an email, do a little online shopping, you know, you were to some degree all right. Um, the world progressed so fast and exponentially. Uh, in the decade that ensued from 2008 to 2018, that um, the rise of internet banking, Amazon, all of the things that we know now, smartphones, um, uh, which were there in 2008, but really had not integrated into our lives to where, you know, we, we've got them with us all the time. And, and I do probably 90% of all my uh, personal shopping and finance and whatever on online. None of that was really there in a large degree for a decade. And so as that progressed, you know, I began to see, and others, it wasn't just me, others began to see this is a gulf. This is a huge divide. And and consumers were upset. Rural communities were upset. Children were being left behind. And there really was no fix except, you know, a strategy of let's just gripe about it. Let's just whine about it. And so we began looking at how how – What's the best strategy for Mississippi at the bottom of almost every list on on economic indicators of of, of uh, socioeconomic status? We were at the the bottom of the heap. How do we move that Mississippi? And as luck would have it, uh, this has got an Alabama twist to it. Uh, I was contacted back in two thousand, late two thousand seventeen, by uh, the mayor of the town of Belmont, which was up in is in Tishomingo County, right on the state line with Franklin County, Alabama. And the mayor said, I'm, you know, I've been invited to this meeting on broadband over in Russellville, Alabama, the county seat of Franklin County, said, I'm not going to be able to go, but I thought you ought to know about it. So I went that night and met uh, Steve Foshi, who is the CEO of Tom Bigby Electric Cooperative there in Hamilton, mm-hmm. Alabama, and um, in, down in uh, Marion County. And Steve was talking about what his co-op was doing on broadband and how they were doing it. And while I had heard uh, some anecdotal stories about co-ops doing broadband this one was 14 miles from the mississippi line uh you know uh, i i know where hamilton alabama is and also there was a, a state representative johnny mcmara who at that time had served 28 years in the alabama house and we began working on how could we study the model and the and the arrangement that had been put together in in hamilton and in marion county and how could we replicate that in Mississippi? Because, you know, it's like um, that proverbial light bulb went off in my head that this, you know, we can take the same model that brought electricity and do the same for broadband if we can get the uh, right uh, players on the on the team and, and get it moving. So I reached out to our electric cooperatives in Mississippi and said, okay, you've got a co-op in Alabama that's doing this. What is prohibiting a co-op in Mississippi, an electric cooperative that wants to provide broadband? What's prohibit them? Why can't you move today? And we returned to a, a bill. The, the answer came back. You know, there's a statute on the books from 1942 that said that uh, electric cooperatives could only sell electricity. That's all they could do. So we had an uh, we had a written prohibition in the law against co-ops doing anything but providing electricity. 
Hmm. Y'all don't have that uh, provision in Alabama. And I'm not aware that that provision is anywhere else in America. We were the only state that had it. That's number one. Number two, you had a Supreme Court decision uh, in Mississippi Propane Association versus Tallahatchie Valley Electric Cooperative that said that that statute, in fact, did apply, that it was exclusive to electricity. So there was no wiggle room within the law or within a court decision. So we knew our first job was to get that law taken off the books, strip that law from the books and get it amended and open the door for co-ops to be able to provide broadband. And, you know, it's, I think it's a great story in citizen participation. Uh, we had 1,310 people showed up at town hall meetings and courthouses, community centers, uh, church gymnasiums, you name it. And we had meetings in which uh, we organized in the 33 counties that I represent, which is in northeast Mississippi and northwest Mississippi, everything from about uh, Starkville, Mississippi, down in Winston County, south of there, to the Tennessee line. Uh, we had 1,310 people sign up and say, we want to get this law changed. And of course, we invited legislators to be there many of whom uh, supported the idea, but many of whom didn't realize that this law had been on the books since 1942. Mm. So um, building that coalition was very important of having those those soldiers who were ready to go out and work and make phone calls and send emails. Um, couple that with the fact that Mississippi Farm Bureau uh, stepped in uh, and, and supported the change in the law. We had the Mississippi Realtors Association, uh, one of the most powerful lobbying groups in the state that were making the case that you can't sell a house in rural Mississippi if they don't have internet service. It was it's, it's been something that's stopping uh, that growth in those rural communities. And then AARP came in to talk about the uh, impact on senior citizens. Once we had that coalition working, uh, we reached out to our cities and counties, of which I think this number is going to be close. I think we had of the 82 counties, we had somewhere around 60 that passed uh, resolutions uh, in supporting the change in the law and supporting the Mississippi Broadband Enabling Act. I think we had somewhere around 100 cities and towns. Uh, and the only reason we didn't have more is we just ran out of time. Hmm. You know, we, we had them pouring in uh, very quickly. So with getting that done, when we went to the legislature, uh, we began to try to work in the fall of 18, uh, talking with the uh, the, le- the lieutenant governor and the speaker and the governor's office and others. And, you know, uh, had a lot of good support. But people, I think there was some nervousness about what is AT&T going to do, what is the cable company going to do. Uh, but to the credit of the legislators and particularly to the credit of uh, House Speaker Philip Gunn, and I have to stop and note here, uh, I'm a Democrat, Speaker Gunn's a Republican. So this is a, an unlikely alliance, you know, as far as the way we look at things, unfortunately, in political partisanship these sure. days. Uh, but Speaker Gunn, uh, Speaker Gunn, you know, was willing to put his name on the bill himself, uh, sponsor it, and that bill sailed through committee. Uh, we had a lot of things that we had to work out in there related to poll attachment fees, uh, to how, in fact, the broadband subsidiary would be set up, that you cannot, for instance, subsidize. You can't charge me an extra penny on, per kilowatt hour of my electricity to uh, do the broadband project. We required in the law that there be a feasibility study and members be a, able to see that. You know, there are a lot of checks and balances in there. And that bill passed out of the uh, the House um pretty much immediately went over. I think it was four days or five days between when the House uh, passed it. Uh, I was able to meet with then Lieutenant Governor Reeves, who's now uh, governor, and uh, Chair Chair Sally Doty, who was chair of the committee, 
And that bill came out, I think, the next day and passed unanimously in the uh, in the Senate. The governor signed it within, the, I think it has to uh, go to him, and, and the statutory process is 10 days. But whatever it was, it was the first bill that Governor Bryant signed in the session. And I think from start to finish, it passed in uh, 16 days. Wow. And so um, <clears throat> that's what got us to where we are. Well, that is... Um... Well, that's that's a great story, and you don't see legislation uh, moving that quickly, uh, which is another, I think, another another example of just how much collective will there is behind. Let's let's do something to solve this. Um, yeah, and 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 I think that's exactly right. I think that legislators, you know, and I, you know, I'm just going to be candid about it. You know, it, it did not hurt our cause. The fact it was an election year. And um, and so with that being an election year, I don't think anybody anybody sitting in the legislature wanted to be a, a vote against it. We had three votes in the House that were against the bill, and those all came from uh, representatives who represented uh, areas that already have you know plentiful broadband. Right, right. Now in Alabama, we have uh, we have a handful of uh, traditional telephone cooperatives. Uh, Tennessee, the north of us, we do a lot of work up there. And in Kentucky, you know, there are telephone cooperatives all over that have been into uh, the broadband business and getting, you know, fiber uh, fiber to the home networks out there in some really uh, sparsely populated areas. But that's not really the case in Mississippi, right? You don't really have those telephone cooperatives out there. We don't. Uh, and uh, we have some small telephone companies that are uh, engaged in the business, but they're uh, their lifeblood is, is federal subsidies, uh, but we do not have I, we do not have a cooperative in the state that's a telephone cooperative. So that that brings us to you know the the getting the electric cooperatives involved was really about um, I'll let you elaborate on this, but is is about the cooperative business model really being the ideal mechanism to solve this problem. Yeah, that, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the biggest people I had to sell on doing this was not the legislature. It was not the governor. It was the electric cooperatives themselves, very few of whom at that time uh, wanted to take on this idea or take on this, this movement. But I think once that they realized that they were, in fact, the vehicle that could solve this problem, uh, we haven't had much trouble getting that moving. Um, but, you know, in 1934, people didn't have electricity in rural areas. They had it in cities. And the issue became how do rural people enjoy the same quality of life uh, as people who live in a populated area? And, and of course, the electric cooperative movement was born here in Mississippi with Alcorn County Electric Power uh, being the first rural electric cooperative formed in America, Pontotoc County being the second, and then three, four, five, and six are all here in, in northeast Mississippi to fix in the 30s what is the exact same problem we have uh, now in 2020, and that is that uh, people living in a populated area enjoyed a quality of life uh, with modern conveniences and technology that folks in rural areas didn't. Co-ops are not there to make a profit. Uh, they are a not-for-profit entity. Their co-ops exist to provide a service to members at the lowest possible cost and to get it to everybody, and they are owned by their very the very people that they serve. And, you know, that model puts people over profits. And that model solved the same. Ex I, I've read so much, if you uh, a history buff, if you read uh, Robert Caro's first book on Lyndon Johnson, there's a great 
chapter uh, in there, uh, two of them called one called the Sad Irons, and it talks about what life on a rural farm or in a rural household was like before electricity. Hmm. And the second one is I'll, I'll get it for you, and it's how Johnson navigated uh, getting electricity and the funding to bring electricity to the hill country of Texas. Um, if you read through that, you see that the, the exact same things. I can remember lines from that book where it talked about farmers and rural families going down to the power company uh, and saying, we really would love to get electricity. And they told them, that's fine. You know, if you'll pay for the poles and the wires, we'll bring it to you. And of course, those people couldn't pay for that. Yeah. Or they would charge a higher rate uh, to get it to them. Those two, in many degrees, those same exact facts set up today and they're in the same vein because of what we see with uh, uh with broadband i mean we've got cable companies that tell people if you'll pay the thirty thousand dollars we'll bring you uh, uh cable internet service and wh- what do you think that rural family says uh, no thank you so the cooperative model is not driven by profits it's driven by a sense of purpose and a mission for uh, the greater good and to actually solve a problem Exactly, exactly. Our company, WordSouth, we've been uh, serving electric cooperatives and uh, rural telco providers for 24 years. And our very first client had a story about, you know, the reason they existed is uh, Electric Co-op in North Alabama. They, they had a bunch of farmers load up on a flatbed truck and ride down the mountain into the, uh, into the town to talk to the investor-owned utility about the same thing you mentioned there. Right. And they got the same response. You know, we we can't go out there and make money, but if you'll pay for all this, well, we'll make that possible. And of course, that's, you know, as you say, absolutely impossible. Well, you know, and see, we we got to we got to decide in this country whether we want people to have broadband or not. And if the answer is we want them to have it, then we've got to you know we've got to tackle it in that way. And and what you're talking about about those people going down, I hear I have constituents call me and say they've contacted the cable provider, and the cable provider tells them, oh, we'll be glad to do it. But you know, even in one case. I had a, a cardiologist here in Lee County, now in Tupelo, uh, that had been told by the cable provider that it was going to cost $7,500 for them. To, he was doing telemedicine from home during the pandemic and said it was going to be $7,500 to get service to his house. Uh, well, a cardiologist probably can afford that, let's be honest. But even even in a more populated area, people are being told that. Right, right. You know, and, and, and the power of the free market solves a lot of problems, but it will never solve the problem of rural broadband because there's just not enough money to be made there to, to pay Wall Street. You know, it's just uh, it's not going to happen. And that cooperative business model has uh, proven itself in the uh, well, and, it ha- and the free markets, the free markets fail rural America on broadband. It's completely failed rural America on rural broadband and 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 the proofs in the pudding with the disparities that are there and the fact that and I support the rural digital opportunity fund I support the universal service fund uh, I, I support all I went I wish Mississippi had one uh, on the state level but but the, the the proof is there and so I you know I I think you're a hundred percent on target that this is the model that is actually getting the work done well, you mentioned the RDOF, and I was, I was about to get into that. You are uh, currently serving as president of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. And in that role, uh, you were on a panel recently w- with a call that I sat in on with uh, Congressman James Clyburn from South Carolina, the majority right. whip, right. Uh, talking about some legislation that I know you've been passionate about and that you have really helped push at the national level. 
um, with, with your position right. at NARUC. Tell us about that. Well, you know, we have been very supportive of a, of a plan that I think is common sense. Uh, there were the funds for RDOF were allocated and budgeted, and and you know the 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 plan for the financing was was released long before we had ever heard of COVID nineteen. And those dollars are essentially sitting there. They've been budgeted. We know that the, they are uh, available to be uh, to be acted upon. The issue becomes uh, when do we do it? And the bill that, that I've supported and that our association supports is a bipartisan bill uh, in the House authored by uh, Democratic Whip Jim Clyburn of South Carolina and Fred Upton of Michigan. Um, it's HR 7022-7022, if anybody wants to look at it. Um, that bill does a couple of things. Number one, it says that if a only one provider offers fiber to the home, one gigabit service to a census block within the clearing price of the auction, then that is automatically awarded if there's only one bidder. So there, if, if only one person steps up and says, I will go serve this rural area in DeKalb County, Alabama, and I will serve that area with uh, fiber, I'll serve it with a gig offering, then in fact, that would be awarded because there's no sense in it waiting to go to the fall auction, which then pushes us out another year. So this is a common sense bill. Uh, it's supported uh, by NRECA, Utilities Technology Council. Uh, we have uh, vast support in a bipartisan manner to do that. My understanding this morning is that both uh, the other two Mississippi congressmen who have been holdouts on that, uh, or not really holdouts, they just hadn't gotten around to co-sponsoring it, have in fact indicated that they will co-sponsor the bill. And it would just it would cut out much of the red tape if, in fact, only one provider stepped up to provide uh, a gig offering and, fi and a fiber service. And so you know, that, that bill, uh, to me, makes a lot of sense, and we're working uh, hard with uh, uh, Senator Roger Wickers, obviously, he's the senator of Mississippi, chairs the Commerce Committee, to try to get the same kind of bill in the Senate. Uh, I've been very disappointed up and you know, till now, unless there's something I don't know about this morning, that we've not gotten more action out of Senator Wicker. He sent a letter to the FCC, uh, and I anticipate them to answer it with, um, you know, with the same bureaucratic uh, excuses of why something can't be done because um, in many ways, um, not everyone at the FCC, and, and we just have a, a disagreement on this, but you know, some people become wed to their idea and anybody else's idea, uh, they don't want to hear it. So that's something that I think is very, very, um, very important to, to try to move forward, to get this money out, to get the building to begin and to um, and required and and by the way, under Clyburn Upton, you would have to a company would have to commence construction within six months and be completed within a year. Hmm. That's a that's a quick quick turnaround there, isn't it? That's pretty quick, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Well, we we certainly need some fast action to to move some of this. And I see what you're saying with uh, you know the money's there; it's been allocated. It's not something. You know, it's it's not new allocations you're asking for on that. Right, right, right. What uh, what is next in uh, what is next in Mississippi in the uh, rural broadband story? Well, you know, right now we've got nine cooperatives that are already moving into the broadband space. We would have never dreamed that when the governor signed the bill, we would have that many. We have nine that are already engaged right 
now and either hooking up customers we're, we're getting those hooked up or in, they're in the process of um of um, just the rudimentary things such as counting their polls tagging their polls that sort of thing so we have nine that are off and running we have three right now that are in the planning stages that uh, plan to bid into RDOF, and and they're looking to see what that award will be. And we have actually uh, eight others uh, in the state who are uh, have at least well, excuse me, six others who have indicated a willing willingness to our legislature that they would engage in broadband if, in fact, uh, they could secure some some funds within the CARES Act. And so we're working that very hard right now. In fact, I'm as I'm talking with you, I'm looking at a proposed piece of legislation that we're working on uh, related to that in which the co-ops have stepped up and said, we can go serve 45,100 of the most unserved areas in this state. Uh, we will put up $75 million to do that if the state will put up $75 million. So it's a dollar-for-dollar match. Mm. And uh, I think we've got some good progress on that, and I think that will be the seed capital uh, matched with any RDOF awards that will really not only take this model and, and make it go, but it will really speed up what we're seeing uh, in otherwise. And, and, and as you know from covering this, most cooperatives have to begin in an area that's populated, and because that's where they can begin making revenue, the old saying is you got to make money in the city to lose money in the rural area. And that's true. <laughs> uh, and so the normal business model would be that you start in a more populated area and the last people to get service would be the people at the uh, in the most unserved areas. Well, if we can secure uh, the program we're pushing in Mississippi, we will begin working that on both ends of the line. The normal business model will continue. You'll continue to begin in populated areas, but also the CARES Act funding would target those in the most rural areas. And so we're uh, we're we've got an all hands on deck approach to this to try to get a meaningful, um, substantive action within our CARES Act allocations that the legislature is going to look at. Right. Well, it sounds like Mississippi's working this from all angles, and I think that that's going to be what it takes. Well, that's that's where we're going. I've actually, you know, I've followed the stories in Alabama about the, the talks there about CARES Act expenditures and actually reached out to Senator Dale Marsh. He and I had a good conversation uh, last week in which we're, uh, I think, trying to exchange ideas, you know, as to what could work best uh, between both states. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um that's uh that's strong in uh, that that's strong as you reach across state lines and try to get new ideas and uh and and share ideas. I think that collaborative spirit is is really key to solving an issue this big. Well, I know you are a, a very busy man, commissioner, and uh I certainly appreciate you sharing some time today. I'd like to close by giving you an opportunity to uh kind of share a little bit about your personal philosophy with uh, it seems to me that you're a man that believes that the government uh, certainly has a role in serving its citizens. And uh, you refer to yourself as an elected official in the style of FDR, who's uh, certainly a, a, a political hero of mine as well in terms of, you know, how he he saw the, the plight of the people and uh, knew that government uh, had a role in taking care of certain things. And let's talk a little bit about your philosophy there. Well, I think that, you know, I've, I've self-described myself as an FDR, Billy McCoy Democrat, and Mississippians would recognize that, and others around the country wouldn't. Billy McCoy was Speaker of our House of Representatives and was the architect of the 1987 Highway Program, which, in fact, brought four-lane highways throughout our state, and it was a, a struggle. Uh, President Roosevelt's philosophy, 
Speaker McCoy's philosophy uh, and others, has been that there are certain things that um, government has to get involved in for the greater good of the people. Um, and, and in the 1930s, it was electricity. In the 1980s, it was highways. Uh, now, uh, the same issue we've got is broadband. And we, we have a choice as elected officials. Uh, the easy route would just sit back and say, oh, that's, you know, um, let's let the market handle it. The market hasn't handled it. Um, you know, the, the report cards have come in and we got an F in how the market is handled getting access to rural Americans. And if we don't do something about it and we do not marshal the forces of government, both in taking away roadblocks. Um, and that's what we did in the Broadband Enabling Act. We actually cut government out of that and actually let the cooperatives, who are uh, an institution owned by their members, providing themselves service, took away their prohibition. Then, in fact, uh, if we did not, if, if if we don't get government out of the way in that sense, uh, you can have progress. And at the same time, if government does not uh, create the type of programs and constructs. That are, that are required for meaningful action. You know, it's one thing to run for public office and say, oh, I'm for bringing service to rural areas. But if you don't create some vehicle and come up with some path and, and, and fund it, or at least uh, not tip the scales to uh, be against it, then you're not going to get this progress. You know, when George Norris came up with the idea um, for TVA, uh, you know, there were plenty of, uh, of fights, real fights, about creating the Tennessee Valley Authority. Well, where would uh, the rural South be without mm-hmm. TVA? Uh, I, I've got I, my hunch says we'd be in a deeper economic hole today than than we already are. It would have been exponential for decades if we had not had Tennessee Valley Authority, if we had not had the cooperative movement. And there's nothing more American in my mind than a group of citizens coming together and saying, you know what, we're going to fix this ourselves. We're going to pool our money. We're going to go out. We're going to fix this problem ourselves. We will charge ourselves the rates that are needed to pay this off. Um, and government backed those loans because they knew that that was a way in which to get it fixed. And so, you know, I think that uh, um, I agree with President Clinton, who said one time there can't be a, a government program for every problem. But there are certain basic necessities in life that if government does not uh, stand up for the people and does not say we're going to make this a priority and for the greater good, I mean, broadband, in my opinion, is, is, is a national security issue. It's an economic security issue. And we can no longer stick our head in the sand uh, and just hope that some uh, tooth fairy or Santa Claus will come in and just hook up every house. We've got to have a plan. We've got to have action. We've got to measure those results. And we've got to continue to push that forward. Um, or we just need to stand up and be honest with the people in this country and say uh, that we don't care about rural America. And that's not a, a stance I'm willing to take. Amen. I think that uh, I think you, you nailed it there. It is a huge problem, but I think we have the ability in this country. And now it looks like we have the, the, the wherewithal and the, and the will to get behind this and fix this thing once and for all. Yes, sir. I agree. Well, again, my guest today has been uh, Public Service Commissioner for Mississippi, Brandon Presley, who also serves as the National Association's president. And it has been a delight having you on the program today, Commissioner. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for all the work you're doing. Again, I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and Rural Broadband Today is a new podcast brought to you by WordSouth, a content marketing company. 
We also are the producers of Story Connect, the podcast. Uh, you'll find these on all of your favorite podcast listening apps. Please be sure to like and share and tell folks about this new podcast, Rural Broadband Today, covering all the issues on what we think is one of the most important and challenging issues uh, facing our country today. Thanks for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of Word South, a content marketing company.